So there's a line from uh, one of the teachings. It's just part of a verse. It goes like this. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, let me see with insight each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it. Invincible, unshakable. And then it goes on. So what we might notice first in this simple verse is that we're asked to look into this question. It sort of invites us to look into the question of past and future. What is the past? Does it actually exist? It says here the past has been left behind. It's true. It's completely gone. You can't change anything about the past. And yet we spend a lot of time thinking about it, some of us. Um, and similarly, what about the future? It has not been reached. I'll, I'll talk more about not having too simplistic of an interpretation of this. But I think it's pointing towards something that's useful for us to consider, especially when we sit down and meditate. And if you review what your mind was doing, just in case it wasn't on the breath the whole time, like mine wasn't, um, it spends a lot of time. You know, we spend a lot of time really considering what happened in the past, thinking about what we're going to do in the future, sometimes worrying or sometimes being excited about what's going to happen. Um, it's a very small fraction of time that we actually are seeing with insight the present moment. Fair enough, the present moment's pretty short. <laughs> but still, it's interesting, isn't it? There are other teachings that point toward being careful about our involvement with the past and the future. There's another teaching that talks about 18 unskillful questions that we ask about the self. And most of them involve stories like this. Was I? What was I? How was I? Will I be? What will I be? Where has this being come from and where is it bound? They're all like that. And they sound kind of hard to connect with when they're abstract. But if you, for example, if you if you're thinking about what you might have said differently in a conversation yesterday, you're basically starting with how was I? Was I effective in that conversation? No, I wasn't. I could have said something different. Maybe I should have said. And so there's this, basically we're concerned with how was I in the past? Was I okay? There's actually, I've heard teachers collapse this whole list of 18 into three questions. Was I okay? Am I okay? And will I be okay? That's a lot of what we're concerned with. Sometimes we substitute other people. Is this other person okay? Are they gonna be okay? That's a lot of what we think about. And it's significant, I think, that the Buddha pointed that out and 
and said these are not necessarily helpful things to spend a lot of time on. You can go your whole life. What if you just thought about that for 50 years? Some people do. Would that be what you wanted to do with your mind? Now, sometimes teachings like this are taken a little bit simplistically, as I alluded to earlier. So they're sort of collapsed into, oh, okay, well, the instruction then is to just be in the present moment. Just be in the present. Don't don't think about the future. Don't think about the past. But I think that's too simple. Um, The issue is not that you should never ever think about anything except the present moment. I mean, creatures that are entirely in the present moment, like, for example, people with Alzheimer's, no memory, no real planning ability, I don't think that's what the Buddha was pointing toward as enlightenment. Or animals, very much in the present moment. Maybe they can anticipate a little bit, but mostly they're pretty much just responding right now. Actually, the Buddha said that we need to have a very sophisticated understanding of arising and passing, what the conditions are for certain things to come about. We're asked to be actually be quite intelligent about understanding how one thing leads to another. Understanding of karma is critical to developing the mind and heart and to awakening. So the problem is not just the past and the future, and we should only be in the present. The problem is that we're involved in the past and future in ways that are not helpful. And we're not involved in the past and the future in ways that are helpful. That's the issue. We get involved in all kinds of irrelevant things. We don't pay attention to what really matters regarding the flow from past to present to future. So how could we be more skillful about that? My mind is naturally on the fires that are going on right now. I feel fortunate that nobody I knew personally um, lost their home. Although a friend of mine lives within a few miles of what's going on there. So far, hasn't had to evacuate and seems to be okay. Some friends of friends lost their homes. I also think about a center up there that was called the Angela Center. It's a Catholic center, actually, that had some nuns. And they were associated with a Catholic high school in Santa Rosa. <clears throat> I think of it because they've been hosting meditation retreats for about 30, 40 years. Some of the people who are teachers now sat their first retreats there before Spirit Rock existed. They were renting centers. They usually rented Angela Center. Joseph Goldstein used to teach there. Of course, I'm saying all this because it it burned to the ground, so that era is over. No more retreats at Angela Center. There are monks living at Abayagiri, which is up in Redwood Valley, a little farther north than Santa Rosa, but they have fires there too. They had to evacuate. They went next door to a monastery, a Chinese monastery called the City of 10,000 Buddhas. Um, and there are nuns at a monastery called Dharma Darini in Pen- 
10 rows, I guess that's what it calls. Is that right? One of the names of the cities up there. Ten Grove, that's what it is. Um, they didn't get burned, but they uh, decided to leave town for clearer air. So, so far, the monasteries I know of have been spared. But I think about this because, you know, people are going along in their present moment, maybe thinking about the past, thinking about the future, was I okay, am I okay, will, be, will I be okay? And the supposed future can alter radically within hours. You know, that's a really big alteration. It's natural that we have ideas about how things are going to unfold. We have to, we have to do that to live as a normal human. But it's good to remember that they're not reality. They're not absolute reality. Usually they work well enough. Um, but every now and then, there's a little or big disruption. Maybe we could be more accurate and say that there is a flow. There always is a flow uh, that makes logical sense. But we aren't always aware of it. So I got this message from one of the nuns at Dama Darini, um, who has moved to the coast for better air. But she says, she pointed out, there was a very similar fire with a very similar fire path about 50 years ago in that area. Since then, it was forgotten about, and that area got very built up. We find here, in one facet, the fact of one race of people coming in and disparaging and neglecting the many, many years of passed down knowledge about the environment that the local native elders used to bear. Thus, what happened 50 years ago was not seen in context and so treated as an isolated incident, not learned from, prepared for, or protected. So now we have a situation repeating, except with more houses and more people due to the increased and spreading population. This is not at all to point a finger of blame. The um, fire spread because and, and happened because the conditions for fire were there. You know, the air was very dry, it was warm. Something happened, the winds were blowing. But nonetheless, um, there is a sense that there was this building uh, right in an area where there had been a big fire 50 years ago. Like, oh, well, okay, the fire's over. Let's move back in. We do this all the time. People do this all the time. I also heard this interesting quote. It was offered by a Thai monk associated with that monastery, with the Bayagiri. When he heard about the fire, he said, if a country's leaders are hot-headed, then disasters will belay the country. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting quote. And it turns out that this is a Southeast Asian, South and Southeast Asian um, phrase that people use a lot. And there's a sense that if um, a culture's mind, or especially if the leadership's minds, are, let's say, overcome with greed, hatred, and delusion, then there may actually be negative environmental consequences. Um, sort of repercussions that act upon humanity and the people and all of life. So 
or even nature is going to be affected and there will be a backlash. No, I don't know. Um, but I think it's an interesting saying and interesting to bear in mind. We don't know all those larger forces. You know, we tend to imagine ourselves as a little isolated being living in an external world, doing the best we can with the people we know, with our friends. Um, but is that really accurate? What about the idea that there is a large picture that we're, our little consciousness can't really take in? And on that larger picture, it's all unfolding quite naturally, just like it, you know, just like physics and other things. And we also build in floodplains, ignoring the fact that that's just where, where the water's going to go with the conditions cause the water level to rise. So there's a combination of, I won't try to name all the issues, but greed for profit, ignorance with regards to causation, using words from the nun again. And then I have a, a contrast to go with that. So this monastery of Ayagiri that's up in Redwood Valley there was a fire um, approaching, you know, kind of, and that's why they had to evacuate. So they, and the fire department actually set up kind of a base at their monastery. They had all the engines coming there and the crews coming there just because it was a central space for them to go to. And they were just allowed to go back a couple days ago and see. The monastery wasn't burned, but a few monks got to go back and, and see how things were. And this crew reported this way, they wrote on their website, the crew reported that the monastery, with a few exceptions, was completely intact. There were still many fire personnel on the property, as fires are still smoldering. However, no structures were damaged, at least none that we could see on our initial trip. One of the monks, Ajahn Jyoti Paulo, recounted one experience talking with a firefighting crew from New Mexico that was still there. Kind of amazing. We've called crews even in from New Mexico to come and help. He says, I asked the crew from New Mexico how it was fighting the fire. They had been on the property for about five days. They said it was the weirdest thing, like the monastery refused to burn. They said one evening that 10 battalions, 20 people to a battalion, were out on the loop trail fighting the fires coming down from the ridge. They reported that the fires got down to the loop trail, but the fire wouldn't cross the trail. They said it was like the monastery refused to burn, and none of them could explain it. They reported their hair standing on end, and then the fire reversed itself and went back up the mountain. Everybody was kind of freaked out, as they had never seen anything like this. I asked several other, several other crews about their experience, and they all reported about this. So, I don't know. Firefighters are not known for being woo-woo, new age types. So, who knows? You know, sure, the wind reversed or something, or I don't know. So, just pointing toward larger forces, larger forces than we really see. And what does that, you know, what does that kind of mean practically for us? I'll offer one interpretation, which is this is it. This this moment, what we're doing with our mind right now, is it. 
This is what we have. This is what we know. There's nothing else in terms of experience. And what we do with our mind has consequences, often maybe on a scale that we don't know. Sometimes I am um, a little sorry that we call what we do practice. That's what we say. Oh, do you have a meditation practice? Are you practicing right now? Do you have a daily life practice? A practice. When's the performance? When's the performance? Sometime in the future? Are you practicing for something in the future? No, this is it. This is it right now. I think it's just this. What we're doing, and it matters. So busy people going about their lay lives in regular society tend to be operating in a haze of attraction and aversion and delusion, like all the folks just living up there. And then that gets maybe compounded by leadership. It's all got to a greater degree. We don't know. We don't know. In contrast, the monks and nuns are developing mindfulness and compassion as many hours a day as they can, learning to align with natural forces. Does this matter? Does this help in some way? there is a line, a wonderful line from the Book of Leadership and Strategy, which is an ancient Chinese text, a Taoist text about leadership. I like this. It says, when society is orderly, a fool alone cannot disturb it. When society is chaotic, a sage alone cannot bring it to order. So we're not individually implicated in the flow of how things go. Um, but in light of, of these large forces in society and nature, what are we to do? And to do our best to align with how things actually work. This is it, this moment. Do the best I can with it. And then this, as I was kind of thinking this through, it brought to mind one other teaching that the Buddha gives. It's a little bit spread out, um, but you can, you can pick out the thread and kind of gather together this teaching. The Buddha didn't really offer a doctrine or a complete philosophy of the universe. He did not uh, replace, he did not try to offer a complete system or ideology. He really was interested in suffering and the end of suffering and <coughs> how we live from this moment to the next in order to avoid suffering. So we have to be a little bit careful about turning what the Buddha said into a set of laws. But nonetheless, he did talk about things called niyamas, which are natural laws in the way things work. And he taught this teaching not so that we would memorize it or take it on as a, an abstract idea, but so that we would be aware of kind of the realms where we need to align ourselves, essentially, because these are realms that all 
such a human being. So he said, for example, that there is there are the laws of physics and chemistry, Utaniyama, laws of physics and chemistry. We don't get out of those. If you throw your body off a cliff, you're probably subject to gravity, mass, matter attracts. So that will happen. So it's good to be aware of that. And then he had kind of layers. I like the way he did it. There's a layer of biology, which includes ecology, Utaniyama. So there are laws about how biological systems work. If you're a reductionist, you say, well, that's no different from physics and chemistry. We could always reduce it to that. But be careful. Actually, um, this is not the case. Um, higher up levels of organization are not actually reducible. We now know. And then above that, there, there are laws of psychology, chitaniyama, the way the emotions and thoughts influence each other in the mind. You've probably observed this in meditation. For example, if I'm spending a lot of time thinking about something, thinking, thinking, I've noticed there's often an emotion underneath that, feeding it, and they're going back and forth. You can learn something about how our mind works by observing it in meditation. It's not unknowable, all those psychological laws. And then there's the law of kama, or action, kama niyama. And this is the law for beings that have intention. For beings that formulate intentions, those actions that come from that are subject to the laws of karma. Interestingly, that's not the only laws, right? This is different from physics, different from biology, laws of karma. And then there's one more. Um, so the Buddha defines five niyamas, but I like to insert one more at this level, the level of sociology, macroeconomics, politics, and culture. The Buddha didn't talk about that level of organization, but I think there are laws that work on that level. We see it in a globalized society, which didn't quite exist in the same way back then. Massive laws of how cultures flow, how countries interact, cultures evolve. And then overarching all of this is the law called Dhamma, Dhamma Niyama. So this is said to encompass all of these and then doesn't really have a boundary. It's includes everything. One of the translations of the word dharma is simply nature. It also means the teachings of the Buddha, and it also means mental phenomena. It's a complicated word. <laughs> but dharma can just mean nature, how things are, how things work. I think and these are not offered, once again, as a philosophy or a belief. Please don't believe these. They're offered as realms for exploration. You should check it out. Are there organizing and lawful principles in all these different ways? And there are, if we, if we look, if we investigate. So we started with the idea that getting lost in the past and the future 
are not that helpful, you know, and that we just need to see the present moment with insight. Now I'm talking about laws or niyamas, flows of things. How are these all related? I would say that tuning into the present moment is exactly how we will know, not intellectually, but directly, what is relevant from the past and what is needed to be done for the future to unfold according to our intentions. That information, I would say, is available in the present. Only if we look deeply enough. But it's right here. Because actually at the deepest level, the past and the future are constructed from the present. They don't have independent existence, but nonetheless, there are flows, there are laws. So our understanding of that and our ability to align with that depends very much on being carefully attuned in the present moment, not lost in, was I okay, am I okay, will I be okay? But it takes some letting go and some trust and some faith to live that way. Yeah, so I think I think that's all I have for now. Are there comments or questions? What was the first law, the, the highest law? That the different, the five different laws, the first one? The, the very first one? Yeah. Uh, physics and chemistry. So, laws at the very fundamental level of matter. Something else. I thought that, so. Yeah, then he went all the physics, way bio- to the macro macroeconomics society. So physics, biology, psychology, karma, and then I insert sociology okay. and macroeconomics right. there, and then the dharma encompasses all of them. Okay. Question about uh, skillful ways to hold uh, metaphysical speculation. I guess because I, I feel like um, my, you know, I one of the things I've always liked about Theravada Buddhism is that it was it's sort of like resolutely like anti-metaphysical in a way, and it's all about like the end of suffering and just the direct line to the end of suffering. But mm-hmm. then I feel like. Recently, just sort of my meditative experience has been. Um, I feel like meta. I feel like I'm seeing some aspects of how things work that are different than how I understood things to work, and so and that's becoming. It's easy to start speculating metaphysically or to start asking questions about what's really going on um, and. You know, which your talk tonight was getting into as well. With, and uh, should one just really like avoid that and shut that down and sort of stay on, you know, that straight line path to the end of suffering? Or is there a way? And I know that like other branches of Buddhism get like a lot more 
metaphysical about everything. Um, and I'm just trying to figure out <coughs> what are the ways to hold that kind of thinking. Mm. So you experience it as, um, as thinking. And do you find it helpful to, to do that kind of thinking? Um, I guess to, to a degree. <laughs> In what to, way is it helpful? Uh, I think it helps provide um, to experiences that are sort of uh, inchoate mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, and that by providing form uh, that can potentially be guiding to practice, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's like providing form to uh, formless experiences. Yeah, I mean, there's... Um... The teachings are passed along in words, and so those are concepts also. So it's not that um, there's no utility to putting some structure on it, but the words are always meant to point. They're meant to point toward something that doesn't really have words. Um, and it's interesting to know, to see that the mind really wants to have something to hold on to, in a sense. And, you know, I don't think that's um, entirely useless. It's practical. Um, and as long as we see that I used to think it was this, and now I see it's more like this, remember that maybe in the future you'll see it yet differently. That can bring some lightness to your thoughts that you're having now, right? This is a skillful use of past, present, and future, is to understand the way things change over time, and to understand that the change isn't done. It'll keep changing in some way. So there's a, there's a phrase, take what's useful and let the rest go by. So if it's useful to have some of these structures and hold it lightly until it's time to let it go by, I guess. Does that help? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, I also appreciate about this branch of Buddhism that um, there isn't as much with the philosophy and the theorizing and the building up of analytical arguments, which became more of an art form later in later forms of Buddhism. But um, it's understood that it, even in those later forms, all of that is preparing the mind to let go in a certain way. Um, we just have so much of that in our society already. We're such thinkers, very thought-oriented, head-oriented. I don't know that those things are as useful for us. Yeah.
find lately I've been uh, experiment about thoughts about the future for the past six months, probably when they're not very long. And I've been struggling with how to not get caught up in that, literally losing sleep at night. Mm. And One level, I know <laughs> that's all in the future. There's nothing I can really you know, do what it will be. Uh, that's likely in the, in the current moment. But on another hand, I keep going down that rabbit hole thing after thing. And I'm not quite sure how to When you feel like your mind is tending toward going down that rabbit hole, um, what do you do in that moment? It often takes me quite a long time to recognize what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's a good approach. Um, it sounds like you're asking this because that's not always effective. <laughs> so there are there are other approaches. Um, for example, and you said this a little bit in what you when you were talking, it's possible to contemplate the disadvantages of going down that rabbit hole. You know, obviously there's an effect on your system, anywhere from losing sleep to you know maybe mild irritation in the moment. Um, and so, you know, if you really feel in your system, wow, the effect of having those thoughts and the anxiety, sometimes that's enough for the heart to say, I don't want to do that, you know, because you care about yourself at some level. So that can be helpful. Um, there's a time and place also for uh, mindful distraction, if you will. But I don't mean like, Take a couple shots of vodka, <laughs> um, or you know, turn on a really bad movie and just zone out for an hour and a half. Um, but you know, go out and take a walk, for example, and <coughs> deliberately breathe the fresh air and look at the trees and you know, kind of get your system um, connected to something else. Essentially, that's another option. There are various ways. Um, you know, just observing mindfully anxiety, anxiety isn't always the only solution. <laughs> it's not always the best solution. Uh, we don't want to hang out in that state for a long time. It's not that helpful. So I would, I would encourage being creative and finding other things, and not worrying about it. Not, you know, not feeling like, oh, but this is so important. The, the anxiety will say, but I'm so important. If you don't think about me, who are you in this moment? Uh, but you're you're much more than your anxiety, and of course you're more effective at moments when you're not caught up in that, right? And if you wanted to actually do something skillful to help, yeah. Yeah, but I know it's not easy. There's also self-compassion. You know, we are all swimming in forces that are bigger than we can necessarily 
We can't control it, essentially. And that's you know, that's the realm then for compassion. I know people who, um, someone who got together a group of chaplains and trauma workers and just headed up to Santa Rosa. You know, they just got a bunch of people together, had some skills, and they just went to meet people where they are, see what's there. Put themselves into that place and see how they could help. It's a very skillful response. Much more skillful than getting really upset or worried or completely fireproofing my own house <laughs> or something. Um, yeah. This, you know, this kind of understanding of bigger forces and the equanimity that develops definitely does not make us indifferent or unable to respond. It might even make us more effective in responding. I noticed, by the way, that uh, when when there was the dripping sound, <laughs> um, I don't know what was going on in your mind, but it, what it looked like was that you got up, investigated, saw that there was water dripping, um, found something to put on the floor, got the mop, uh, stabilized the situation, came back, shut the door nicely, thinking of the rest of us, and sat back down. It didn't look like it was a too big of a deal. And when the speakers went off in the middle, I don't know why, I just reached over and shut off the power to them. And went back to sitting. I only had about five seconds of disruption. So this is what can happen as we just get more attuned. It doesn't make all the glitches not happen, <laughs> um, except maybe the fire turning back. That was pretty interesting. <laughs> we don't know. Um, but there's a way in which we can just flow along and respond appropriately to these things um, without too much ika, too much reaction. A lot of freedom in being able to flow that way. Anything else? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.